0: Hey, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast from Vital Point Church. My name is Ron. I'm the pastor here at Vital Point. We believe that it's important for people to explore and grow in their faith. And my hope my prayer is that this message that you're listening to will draw you closer to better understanding how you can live out your faith journey in the everyday life. Sit back and enjoy. I figured since it's uh, snowing that I'd talk about uh, Christmas. It, it, okay, whoa, whoa, easy. Wow. In case you missed it at home, I got a boo from someone in the front row. You know, last night, uh, Vital Point had a, a float in the parade for Poplar Hill. Like, it was so great. Like, I, I, I honestly, I, I, that's the first time I've been a part of a church where we actually did a, par- uh, did a float in a parade. And uh, I was so thrilled. It was so exciting. Uh, Lisa, our family ministry director, and the students did a fantastic job with this float. It was absolutely incredible. It was so fun to uh, participate in that. It was great. We froze, but it was good. It was good. Uh, Christmas is coming. You can boo me all you want. It's coming. Uh, And Christmas around here, if you're newer to Vital Point, you need to know it's a pretty big deal. And uh, on the weekend of the 17th and 18th of December, we have seven services across our three locations. And uh, it is going to be fantastic. And, uh, and the tickets are live right now on our website. So you go to the website, go to events, and so on, and it will, it, you can just click on Poplar Hill and there's five different options there, services. Uh, Exeter is one option, uh, Clinton is another one, and uh, we're just so excited. But here's the thing, what you need to know, and this is getting out there early with this, is that... People are more receptive to an invitation at Christmas like no other time of the year. And so I hope that you will be thinking about people in your life that you can invite and be part of this. And uh, it's gonna be a fantastic, I've, uh, fantastic celebration. I've listened to the music already. I've seen some of the creative things that they're going to be doing and the programming. I just hope the message doesn't you know, tank you know, because that's my responsibility in the whole thing, but uh, it's going to be a great celebration, the 17th and 18th, and just so you know, there will not be a service on the 25th, and all you're like, yes, yeah, I'm surprised you didn't cheer for that one, it's like, no, no service on the 25th, and January 1st, just so you know, you don't have to remember all this, January 1st is going to be an online service only, and so just be aware of that, that's where we're headed, so you can stay out late New Year's Eve and still get up and watch service online, Yeah. You're a rowdy bunch today. (laughs) All right, so I gotta jump into a conversation here on uh, how to win at life, and we're gonna talk about gentleness today. We've been in this series uh, talking about how to win at life because we recognize that the world is uh, deceiving us as to what it actually means to win, and we've been talking about it from a perspective of understanding more how God's, God sees us winning at life. See, the world would tell us that uh, you win if you are gaining, getting more power, uh, maybe through, the, through greed and those type of things. Uh, even in our culture, winning at life, we love to idolize celebrities and pro athletes because they're successful, so therefore they must be winning at life. We put their posters on our walls. At least when we were kids, we did that. I don't know if they still do that nowadays. But we often find ourselves trapped by what the world is selling us, right? They try to convince us that we're not going to be happy if we don't have that particular thing. Marketing companies are genius at pulling on our disordered desires and dysfunctional wants and needs in our lives. And so we buy into a system that sells us, the, sells us this idea that we're only winning if everything's going up and to the right? But what we've discovered in this series, if you've been with us, or maybe today's your first time with us, is that actually winning has very little to do with the external aspects of who we are, but more of the internal part of who we are. And so we've been looking at the depth of what it means to become more like Jesus. And if you're new to church, we believe that he is important and he is vital for your life. And we want to point you to him so that you better understand him because we are complex human beings. We're more than just the physical part of who we are. We're deeply spiritual, and we understand that this part of us is to be transformed into what we've been referring to as likeness Now, the section of the Bible that we've been using for this entire series is a New Testament letter called Galatians, and uh, I'll get to the two verses in just a moment, but what we've been recognizing is that uh, Paul wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, Galatians, and he wrote it because Christians of the day which were receiving this letter were falling back into old patterns of living from what is called the uh, the law and so what was going on was they, they had encountered this new relationship with Jesus, but they were falling back and and believing that they could only relate to God through what is called the law. And there's the original Ten Commandments, and then you fill that out. They had about 600 plus laws that they would uh, see as how they would relate to God. And so they would fall back to these things. It's interesting, isn't it? Humans have a tendency to fall back to familiar patterns and behaviors, We do this automatically. That's why we've been talking about transformation. That's why we've been talking about moving forward into the picture that God has for us. Now, I want to just identify a couple things for us before we look at our verses. And I want to talk to those of you who maybe are followers of Jesus already. You know, it's very easy to fall into this trap that, you know, winning at life and faith is about doing more for God. Like, sometimes we fall into this trap. You know, we maybe have encountered Jesus, we've encountered grace, and it's a, it's a meaningful experience. Maybe you're gripped by the reality of your sin before God, and you're overcome with that, and you recognize grace is at a critical piece of what it means to follow God. A friend of mine, a number of years ago, I used to play soccer with him at the German-Canadian club in London, and uh, I remember him sharing with me over coffee that he had taken what is called the Alpha Course. It's a video series talking about the Christian faith and talking about who Jesus is, why did he have to die? It's like this incredible video series that we're actually gonna do in the new year here. And he told me that on the Holy Spirit weekend, he actually was overwhelmed with this idea of his sin and, and the reality of grace in his life. And he told me that he sat in the front pew with his priest and he was talking about the reality of grace in his life. And as he shared it, he had tears in his eyes. There are sometimes we come to this reality of what grace actually has done for us. And in the conversation with him, he'd had this full on realization of who he was before God as a sinner. Now there's this verse in uh, another verse that Paul uh, gave us, uh, another letter Paul gave us called Ephesians. He says it like this, "For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." What's going on here is that Christians sometimes fall back into patterns of believing they earn God's favor by doing more for God, right? I'm winning if I give more money to the church or if I go to church and show up on a snowy day, right? You brave the roads and God must be impressed with you. Or if I read my Bible every morning or if I just spend more time praying and, re- and being open, we think that we're impressing God and we jump right back into religious motion, Right? We've become trapped by a performance-based faith rather than the richness of faith in relationship to Jesus. Sure, those things are important. Yes, going to church and being part of church and reading your Bible, praying and in community. Yes, these are foundational disciplines and rhythms and patterns in our lives, but God's not impressed with those things. It's not like he goes, good for you. You did a great job today. You actually prayed. Matter of fact, he's not impressed with that. He doesn't care. Because what he wants for you is to abide in Christ To live in that relationship with Jesus, being transformed by the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit. This isn't a distinction of understanding what it looks like to live into the Christian faith, to understand the reality of a walk with Jesus, to be transformed. You will actually bear fruit. This is what we've been talking about when it comes to winning. We've been talking about this reality of these nine pieces of the fruit of the Spirit that Fill in our lives and create a mature faith, a resilient faith, and to look more like Jesus in your life. I'll read the verses for you. Galatians 5, 24 and 25. It says this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Funny story from this week. I got into the office on Monday. I was so excited to study and to write for self-control. Self-control. I studied for almost three quarters of the day for self-control, and then someone said to me, it's not self-control this week, it's gentleness. That's how my week started. So I have some thoughts about self-control. No, I'm just kidding, gentleness today. Paul's guiding us to this place to understand that the fruit of the Spirit are these nine things. When I read those for you, those nine qualities, virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, many of you said, I want those. Like, who wouldn't want that in their life? I've never talked to anybody who tells me they wake up in the morning, they can't wait to be miserable. You know, I just hope I'm angry all day, you know? I want to create the vision, you know? No, we look at these things and we go, yeah, I want these part of my life. It's why we buy the self-help books, Right? It's why we go to maybe a counselor or try some sort of form of meditation or you try yoga or you go on long walks or you try church. It's because you're looking for these things in your life. And what we've been discovering is that it's so amazing that the Christian faith is about these things formed by the Spirit of God in your life. It's not about a masterclass class and learning how to love those you can't stand. It is literally this idea of moving in the beauty of the relationship with God. Now, I would say this to you this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus yet, if you've not put your faith in him, when you do that, this is what it will look like. What he's talking about here is the fruit of the spirit. These things will be developed in your life. How great is that? Like what a great picture to hold up to say, this is what it means to be a person of faith and following Jesus. So what is gentleness then? How does gentleness actually form in our lives? Why does it make its way into the list of nine? Why was it there? Well, I believe it's there because our culture tells us that that gentleness is more about weakness and softness, but that's not true. See, in our culture, we hold up those who are brave and strong and who are taking the mountain, go-getters, and we would say gentleness from a world's perspective is actually about being soft and weak, but that's not true. I did some digging on this uh, eventually as I got around to studying for gentleness, and I discovered a definition that is extracted from some of the original language around this word gentleness. Here's the definition. Gentleness means having great power and choosing to wield it in a compassionate way for the benefit of others. Let's leave that on the screen for a second. Gentleness means having Great over here. Gentleness means having great power and choosing to wield it in a compassionate way for the benefit of others. When I think about gentleness from that perspective, do you know who I automatically think about? Jesus. You're like, I knew it, right? Jesus. Jesus demonstrated this in his life. Jesus had great power. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but he had great power. The Bible teaches us in Galatians chapter one that all things were created by him and for him and actually all things hold together in his great power. When you look at the life of Jesus, you begin to realize that he is the exact image of God because he was God in the flesh, but yet he had all power, but yet he showed incredible gentleness. We can read about all the different stories of Jesus' life, and you can actually begin to pick out pieces of the stories and go, oh, there it is there. There's a nuance of gentleness. Oh, there's a moment where he showed it. There's no greater story, though, than John chapter 8. I want to tell you the story. In John chapter 8, we see Jesus demonstrate gentleness through the life of a woman who was caught in adultery, Okay? Jesus, typical to his day, he had gotten up early. He had made his way to the temple, and he began to teach the things of God. He would proclaim and teach the kingdom of God. People would gather around. People would come from everywhere to see Jesus. No one had ever heard him teach. No one had ever heard someone teach like this before and do miracles and such. They were so drawn to him. But what was interesting about this moment in John chapter 8 is that the, the scribes and the Pharisees catch this woman in the act of adultery and they bring her to Jesus and throw her down in front of him. Play it out for just a second. Imagine what that would have felt like for her, for the crowd, for Jesus. I mean, everybody's taken a collective breath. <gasps> what is this moment gonna be? See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they throw this woman at the feet of Jesus, and they say, what do you announce we should do here? The law of Moses commands that we stone this woman, that we put her to death. This is, this is the outcome of her act of sin. Jesus is not fooled at all. Some of you might be familiar with the story. Others of you may not. He's not fooled by their arrogance. He's not tripped up by what they were trying to do in this moment. He kneels down, and he begins to write in the sand, Like, if you've ever been asked a tough question and you're not sure how to answer it, just get down and start writing in the sand, right? Just throw people off. It's like, didn't see that coming. And he begins to write in the sand. And everyone's watching. The crowd is looking in. Jesus is there, the scribes and the Pharisees. She's there. And they're like, what in the world is going on here? She's embarrassed. She's ashamed. She's expecting that she's gonna be put to death. And then Jesus says this in John 8, verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he bends back down and starts writing in the sand again. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, the scribes and and Pharisees begin to fade into the crowd. They pull back in that moment. Now, side note, some of you are asking, what did Jesus write in sand? Aren't you? At least you should be. You should be asking that question. But here's the thing we don't know. We have no idea what he wrote. We have ideas and theories. Like, did he write the names of the men, the scribes and the Pharisees that had actually been with this woman before? Oh, that'd be awkward, right? Didn't see that coming, right? Some actually say that he wrote the Ten Commandments that were originally written in stone. He wrote them in the sand because he was about to cover it with grace, as they fade away, see, I don't want us to be distracted by what he wrote in the sand, because as they fade away into the crowd, we begin to see this moment where Jesus stood up and he says to the woman, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus had all power, didn't he? He could have condemned her. He had the law on his side. He is God in the flesh. He could have invoked some sort of judgment on her in that moment, but he chose gentleness even in the words in which he said, go and sin no more. Can you imagine what that was like for this woman? Can you imagine what that must have felt like deep within her very being? See, here's the thing. Some of the things that we need to think about. When it comes to understanding gentleness formed in our lives, we must realize first and foremost that Jesus has offered us the same gentleness. That he's offered us the same gentleness and the same kindness. Gentleness can only be formed in us when grace is a reality in our lives. See, like the woman who's caught in adultery, the wages of our sin is the same. It's death. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans 6. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is he saying? The wage of sin is death. We deserve death. I was gonna get us to all chant together, we deserve death, but I figured it'd be kind of weird, so I'm not gonna do that, right? The sin... The, the sin requires a payment. See, apart from Jesus, we're not free from our sin. We're slaves to our sin. We fall short of the glory of God and the holiness of God and the perfection of God. God demands a payment for sin. And thankfully, God stepped in through the person of Jesus Christ and he stepped in on our behalf. That's what we're gonna celebrate Christmas, leads to Easter. And when, by faith, when we step into relationship with Jesus Christ, what we find is freedom from the power and the penalty of our sin so we have new life. Again, we must understand that in order for gentleness to be formed in our lives, grace first must be a reality. Paul writes about this earlier in Romans where he talks about we're all born into this thing called Adam, Adam's sin. We're in the original sin. That is part of our lineage. But then in Christ, we have new life in him that is offering us eternal life. This is the Grace. Now, what's so beautiful about this is that now we live with a power that is the same power that brought Jesus from the grave is the same power that is living inside of us. We're gonna talk about that next week because I have the talk already done for next week. We're gonna talk about this power and self-control. But what is so beautiful about this is that the power that is available to us is demonstrated through the gentleness in our lives. The power of Jesus is demonstrated in the gentleness when it is formed in us. I want to go on a tangent. I just want to go on a bit of a bunny trail around. Because it just felt like I needed to say some of these things. Gentleness is very fascinating because the, the Christian church is, is often gets b- bad labels, right? right? Sometimes it's just like icky. It's like... Yeah, and sometimes it's merited, sometimes it's not. But what I find interesting is that sometimes the negative things are often fueled by well-intended Christians who love to display their convictions of right and wrong in a way that is not helpful, okay? Okay? Now, let me be clear, because I don't want to receive emails and conversations afterwards. Yes, you need to have deep convictions. Yes, you need to know what truth is. Yes, you need to know right from wrong. And it's not formed by personal opinion and cultural pressure. We need to be formed by what the scriptures teach us of what right and wrong is and what truth is. Absolutely. But one of the things that concerns me a lot is that oftentimes we hold so tightly to our convictions and we defend it at at the sacrifice of losing influence of those around us. I'll say it like this, if your convictions are not outpaced by gentleness, you're doing more harm to the name of Jesus. I can put it another way, in case you missed that one. Conviction without humility is like a battering ram in the lives of those around you, right? Some of you right away began thinking about Jesus again. Right away, your mind went to Jesus. Well, hang on a second. After Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this nice little colt and he's just like, ooh, going in so nicely or singing, the palm trees are out. And it's like, next thing you know, he's kicking over tables in the temple. Gentle? He's calling the religious people names. You should read the list. It's amazing. See, gentleness is a controlled power that knows when to be assertive. But here's the thing. Not assertive of self. The assertiveness is not of self. That's where we get it wrong. Christians sometimes fighting for truth and to be right, they treat it like a boxing match. You win like with truth blows and you're like, whoa, I really won that match. Christians love to be right. We fight for our right. Gentleness is assertiveness that makes the one on the receiving end know that God is for them. I think I need to say that again. Gentleness is assertiveness that makes the one on the receiving end know that God is for them. It's power under control. It's not the fear of always having to be right. When a boldness or assertiveness steps forward through the posture of gentleness with an injustice, it shows that God cares and it's revealing who Jesus is. The scene with Jesus in the temple, it's wild. His assertiveness in that moment was what? Towards the religious people that turned the temple into a den of thieves. They were trading and bartering and buying, treating it like a banking system. They'd lost the plot line. And he's going in with an assertiveness, not of himself, but assertiveness of the truth that he wanted them to hear. But he also showed assertiveness and gentleness with the woman when he said, go and sin no more. Right? Why? He wanted her to know through gentleness and grace that he had the best for her. He did this as he told stories and gave room for sinners and tax collectors and those who were on the outside. See, what gentleness does for us, it helps round off our convictions and gives room for those who are in the process of transformation into likeness. It spends time with those who are on the outside of faith with an open ear and a listening mind. I've been reading this book called Messy Truth by this guy named Caleb, and I can't pronounce his last name. It's kind of a tough last name, it's called Messy Truth. Look it up. And he talks about this idea of conviction and compassion and conversation. And as I've been reading this book, I've realized that's exactly what gentleness looks like. It's having convictions with compassion to open up for conversation. If you're consumed with always being right, you're not going to be gentle. See, gentleness has a way of magnifying the grace that has changed your life. Gentleness has a way of magnifying the grace that has changed your life. A few years ago, I, um, I had this incredible conversation with a young woman. This was, I was part of, a, um, part of a, another church, and she was in this young adult group, and she wanted to tell me that she was a, a lesbian, and, and she set up a meeting with me. It was really great, and she wanted to talk about all this. And so we got together, and she sat in my office, and, and uh, I can remember so distinctly, this was a number of years ago, and I said to her, hey, listen, Like when we're in this when we're sitting here, I want this to be a conversation. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. I just I want you to sense the gentleness in the conversation. See, I knew that she was coming into my office office with an assumed position that the culture would tell her that if I happen to disagree with her, then I hate her. I don't like the lie that the world is telling right now about things like this and other things that are going on in our world. It makes me a little nervous. Like, I, I can love you and not agree with you. Like, I, and plus, with this particular topic for her, I don't see her through her sexuality. I saw her through the lens of she matters to God. And originally, she's created in the image of God. She's an eternity stamped on her, on her soul. And on top of that, Jesus died for her. Like, that's where I was sitting from in the posture and the gentleness. And it was fascinating because as we entered into the conversation, it was so rich and beautiful It was ebb and flow back and forth in conversation. A number of months later, she kind of disappeared, and then I got a message from her like a year later, and she wanted to apologize to me because she was starting to treat me like she assumed I was going to treat her. It was such a great moment for me. See, gentleness opens up conversation. It allows ears to hear and to listen. I learned this from my dad and uh, every once in a while, I drop in stories about my dad. Uh, he died when I was 11, and I, I have very few memories of him. I don't know why. At 11, you'd think you'd have a whole pile, but I only have a few. In the first 10 years of our lives, we lived in Toronto, and we lived in a, a neighborhood with all these Italian people. And there was just, <laughs> there was us, you know? They, their gardens would grow over into our backyard, and I would eat the cucumbers through the fence. I can remember, <laughs> and they also made their own wine and back in the 70s you need to know that not many at least in our circle not many Christians drank wine they maybe did it in the closet but they didn't do it publicly right that was kind of supposed to be funny but I guess it didn't roll off my tongue well enough I'll work on that for the next service Um, and they would bring wine over to our house I I don't know why I can see my dad taken the bottle of wine, and he didn't drink. At least I don't think he did. And I, I, I can remember him just so, I can see it so clearly in my head. See, the more I discover what winning at life looks like, it's important to understand that the gentleness allows those moments to display the grace of God and the kindness of opening up doors and opportunities. Gentleness is the power under control for the benefit of others. I've been saying this now for a few years, and I feel like we're living in some weird dimension as a culture and a society. It just feels so odd right now, doesn't it? We're, we're not sure what's up and what's down, what's backwards, what's forward. We feel like everything's becoming unhinged, and I agree. It feels so odd right now. Things have swung so far in one direction. I'm just like, I'm not even sure which way to turn now. But I also recognize in our culture, it is soaked right now with anger and division and hostility. Have you noticed it? The frustration and the tension in all of us is just beneath the surface of our lives. We see it in the world around us. And I have been saying this for a couple of years now, and people, I don't think, believe me yet, and so I'm gonna to continue to say it until I win. We live in the most amazing moment in history as the church that we, as the church, can rise up in the midst of the confusion and demonst- demonstrate gentleness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, that when we watch the people around us come unhinged because they're reserves are so low and their tanks are almost empty we as the church can rise up being formed into the image of jesus to show who jesus is by being gentle power under control jesus said this in matthew chapter 5 verse 5 blessed are the meek same word for they will inherit the earth When we realize that this is something that we're called to, we are forced to look in the mirror of our lives and ask, am I demonstrating this? Is it being formed in me? Am I becoming more gentle? Or am I angry and gotta be right all the time and defend truth because that's what God has called me to do? See, here's the key. Gentleness is found in grace and forged in love. Gentleness is found in grace and forged in love. I was thinking about this this week. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, know what he said? Love God, love others. Like every week, like every Sunday, that's basically what we're trying to move us towards. Loving God and loving others. And maybe you're a Christian, you're like, you're tired of hearing about love. Take it up with Jesus. He's the one that told us, right? Love God, love others. There's no other way. And I mean love those who drive you crazy, right? Anyone have? No, don't put your hands up. And don't look at the person beside you. Right? It's this deep formed love that demonstra- that's demonstrated through gentleness. It's, it's this posture that we've been asked to take. So I, I'm going to ask you, we've we got a closing song, but I want to ask you, when you look in the mirror right now, do you see a growing love for God? And do you see a growing love for others? If you don't, then you can't form gentleness. It just won't happen. Because you need love to lead you to gentleness. That's why Paul started with love as the first one. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Love flows into all the other pieces. So as you think and contemplate about these truths today and wrestle with them, and you have to discern if they're true or not, I just don't expect you to accept everything that I've said today. You've got to work on these things yourself. But as you lean in, ask yourself the tough questions. Is this being formed to me? Do I really love God? And do I really love others the way I'm called to?